trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us as a wrong thinker, a person ready to stand up and claim your freedom. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. And I have my friend Eric Peters on the line with me today. Eric, how are you? I'm good, and I wish I could be out in solidarity with those truckers up in Canada who are making their voices known about uh, Trudeau, uh, Trudeau's obscene vaccine mandates that will prevent them from hauling freight across the border. Yeah, I wanted to get your take on this because, you know, I I thought, okay, you know, it's not a bad idea. You know, people people who start to realize how much of what they consume actually arrives on a truck, you know, could have a real interesting wake-up call if the truckers really, you know, got together and, and said, hey, we're, we're going to stand in solidarity until these mandates, all these mandates are lifted. Yeah. And they've done it. And it's been so interesting to hey. see the press ignoring, you know, what they were doing until, until the reality was just too much to ignore. Absolutely. You know, people are complaining about supply chain disruptions. They're worried about going to the store and seeing empty shelves and uh, about alarming increases in prices. And I think most people have absolutely no idea uh, what's going to happen and how the problem is going to be compounded if this mandate that the Canadian government has put into, into place stays. Uh, essentially, people who uh, drive trucks for a living and who drive across the border, if they're not vaccinated, they have to quarantine. I think it's for 15 days or something crazy like that. No exceptions each time they come across the border. And, of course, that's simply impossible for a trucker to do and continue to work. So, Essentially, a lot of these guys who work as truckers are facing the choice of if they want to continue to drive a truck, they have to get the vaccine. And a lot of them have just drawn a hard line in the sand and say, we're not going to do that. And so the result will be a lot fewer trucks that are out there shipping goods for us to the stores. And that is just going to compound this problem of stuff not being in the stores and the price of the stuff that is there going through the roof. Yeah, and I, you know, I know that the, the blame, at least on the part of those who are feeling the discomfort, the, the, the powers that be are going to shift that to, well, see these selfish truckers, these, these fascists or whatever they're, they're yeah. calling them these days. Sure. But the reality is it's because of these government officials that these truckers are standing up and, you know, God bless them for having the courage to do so. It hasn't been easy, sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm putting together a piece right now. It's not up on the site yet, but it's just trying to ask some very reasonable questions that that pertain to what's going on. You know, these, you know, if these vaccines, if it's so essential to get the to get everybody vaccinated, and if and and if there's if there's no if there's no harm to it, then uh, how about at the very least uh, making the vaccine companies liable, taking away their exemption from liability for the harms that potentially might be caused from this product. Uh, you know, you can't sell a blender without some kind of warranty as to its fitness and soundness. And if you do buy a blender and it turns out to be defectively designed and the blade goes spinning off the thing and it cuts your finger off, you can sue the blender maker. And if it turns out that the uh, the company knew their, their blender was defectively designed and put it on the market anyway, that's something that's criminally actionable. 
And given the track record of all these pharmaceutical companies, this isn't you know paranoia. We have, we have an established track record going back to thalidomide all the way through Olestra, Vioxx, fentanyl, of these companies selling drugs that were dangerous, and in many cases they knew they were dangerous and continued to sell them anyway. They've been held criminally responsible for this. It's reasonable to not trust them, and it's even more reasonable not to trust them when there is no liability for them doing what they're doing and then you add a profit motive to it, forced onto us by the government. You know, there are legitimate reasons for what they style hesitancy. So uh, if they want to ease our hesitancy, why don't they take away the reasons for our being suspicious and worried about these vaccines? Well, in the uh, truest Jack Nicholson fashion, because you can't handle the truth. Or at least that's the message I'm getting. I, yeah, I guess so. And, you know, I think that's very off-putting to a lot of people because uh, and I'm trying to articulate this in this article that I'm working on. You know, it's not anti-vax. It's simple due diligence. Uh, you know, if you, got, if, if you got taken by a used car dealer who sold you a, a vehicle that they knew beforehand had had accident damage or that it had a bad transmission and they, they put sawdust in the transmission just to get, you know, get it to work long enough for you to be dumb enough to buy the thing. Uh, probably you would not want to buy another car from that company, right? Right. You know, and that, that's essentially what we're dealing with with these pharmaceutical companies, only it's a life-and-death kind of a thing. And somehow uh, they have managed to secure exemption from liability. Now, that is a huge thing. I think as a libertarian that I have the right, if I want, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to skip liability for something. You know, if, if I want to take a risk upon myself, well, that's on me. I believe that I have the right to do that. But when you add the element of coercion and duress to that, I think you have a right to liability. If somebody tells you that you have to do X, Y, or Z, or whatever it is, and, uh, and doing X, Y, or Z could hurt you, could cause harm to you, then you have a right to hold those people liable if that harm uh, should arise. So that's my position on this. And I think that without that, there is simply no way they're going to convince the, the, the hard-set portion of the population. That's me and a lot of other people who absolutely will have nothing to do with these drugs under any circumstances because we just don't trust these pharmaceutical companies. No. And and of course, uh, I, I want to segue here into the, the current war against misinformation and disinformation. Uh, you and I talked before we went on the air. Joe Rogan has been uh, a key yeah. part of this. And I, I'm disappointed to hear that he agreed to, uh, what was it, warning content labels or content warning yeah, labels? Yeah, he essentially... Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and some other aging leftist rock stars uh, were all upset because he interviewed Robert uh, Malone, who has multiple patents and is one of the founders of the RMNA vaccine technology, and who has uh, done a three-hour interview with Rogan in which he talked about some of the concerns that he has about the vaccines. Certainly the man has standing to talk. He's not just some crazy guy out there who's opposed to these vaccines. At any rate, uh, Young and some of these other rockers threatened to pull their song catalogs from Spotify, which is, you know, primarily uh, a source for people to listen to music through. And that apparently caused a lot of pressure to be put on Rogan, who, as I understand it, uh, has agreed to allow them to put these little asterisks and, uh, you know, these, these, little, uh, these little cautionary things on, whenever, on, on any program that, that, obje- that, that is objected to by these people as, quote-unquote, misinformation. And it just serves to further this narrative that to criticize anything that uh, we're told about vaccines or to question anything that we're told about them uh, is somehow deranged and to delegitimize that. And it's a terrible thing 
to do that, particularly with, with regard to, to Malone, who, if you've listened to his interviews, the man is very methodical. Uh, he avoids talking anything that could be construed as conspiracy. He simply lays out what he knows, and he knows a lot uh, about the nature of these vaccines. And it's information that people have a right to hear, in my opinion. No, I'm, I'm with you. And, and uh, this is one place where I do have to give Rogan credit. Um, he, I think he has responded pretty diplomatically to some of the attacks against him. You know, and, and in fact, uh, somebody had made the suggestion, I think it was Thomas L. Knapp, who said, you know what Rogan needs to do? is invite Neil Young on his show. Sit that back, would be great. smoke some weed with him, and just talk about whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, agree. I think Rogan would actually be the kind of guy who would be willing to do that. I, I don't know if Neil Young is, you know, still too dogmatic to consider such things, but that might actually be a good starting point for I, a I conversation. Doubt Young, I doubt Young or anyone like him would appear on Rogan, Rogan's show because for them it's a dogma. It, it's, it's simply a religious question, uh, an article of faith. And you must not question it. If you even raise your hand, then somehow you're uh, automatically guilty of wrong think, you know, of some, some heretical evil thing. They're not capable of having a civil discussion. This is something I think the people on our side of the aisle have got to come to grips with. You know, we, we I, I like to think, I think we're fair-minded people and, and we're open to discussion. And if you have a fact that, uh, that, that is contrary to some opinion that I've got, I can be persuaded by that. The problem with the other side is that there is absolutely no room for that sort of fact-based discussion when you're dealing with hysterical, emotional reactions to things. No, I, I hear you. And I, I'm just grateful that there are alternative sources of information. You know, the, the push for censorship, I think, actually brings more people into awareness of, wait, who's this guy that Rogan was interviewing? Whether it was, you know, Robert sure. Malone or whether it was Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, people who weren't interested before... Now that it's now they're being told it's forbidden, well, they definitely want to know a little bit more about it. Yeah, I think I think most people, when they're told they're not allowed to talk about something, when they're told they're not allowed to hear something, it immediately causes them to think, well, wait a minute, what are they trying to keep from me? What are they trying to hide from me? You know, don't give me the stuff about how it's dangerous to hear whatever the heck it is. You know, truth can stand up on its own two legs. Uh, it's always untruth that is afraid of being examined because it can potentially be uh, found to be fallacious, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's, that, that's what we're dealing with here. The best, the best way to combat what is called misinformation is to put the information out there and see whether it's true or not. Amen. Hold that thought, Eric. We're going to come back and continue our conversation. We're with Eric Peters from epautos.com. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, we are joined by Eric Peters from epautos.com. And Eric, uh, there was an article that uh, you had published a couple of days ago, really got my attention. Mainly because I have I've counted myself very blessed to have lived in areas where um, speeding cameras, you know, the the red light or, or, yeah. or traffic ticket cameras were just not a thing. And I understand that our uh, our secretary of transportation has an idea that uh, that seems kind of sinister regarding speeding. Well, yeah, it's of a piece with this general trend that's been ongoing now for decades to essentially suck all the joy out of driving, so as to get people to stop driving that's the you know that's 
the that's the final agenda here. And what we're talking about now, uh, Buttigieg wants to use some of the boodle of the so-called infrastructure bill uh, to erect a panopticon of speed cameras all across the country on all the highways uh, to address the problem. And he, it's so it's so unbelievable they put things in this terms in these terms uh, of of equity when it comes to driving, you know, because some people get away with speeding. And, of course, that's somehow implicitly racist, I guess, in the minds of these, these deranged leftists. So they want to make sure everybody drives exactly the same speed. And one of the, one of the, great, one of the most um, effective ways to do that uh, is to make it known that, hey, you know, when you're out on the highway, every other mile there's a speed camera, and if it catches you going faster than the speed limit, ding, you're going to get a ticket. Ding, your insurance company's going to know about it you're going to get a fine. And, of course, you get a couple of these things, and it gets to the point where you can't afford to drive anymore because the cost to insure your vehicle is so high, notwithstanding that you've not been in an accident, notwithstanding that you know, you're know right. you a safe driver. Well, so, I, yeah, that. I had to laugh because I saw that, That's one of the things that they have in mind for us. I saw the, somebody had posted a meme of a, uh, a traffic camera repair kit. And it was a mm-hmm. wrist rocket with a package of ball bearings. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. <All> right. <laughs> well, they've actually done that. You know, the, this, is, this is something that the Europeans are well ahead of us in this. Uh, if you go to the U.K., uh, you go to France, those cameras are everywhere. And one of the ways that the hoi polloi have been dealing with it is just through that method with cans of black spray paint, uh, wrist rockets, and various other things, uh, at, you know, as a way to combat it. Now, of course... Uh, it's really not that effective. The way, to, the way to challenge this, I think, is to question the whole premise behind it, which is this idea that there is a holy number on a sign somewhere decreed by some government bureaucrat, and that uh, going any faster, traveling any faster than whatever that number is on the sign is, is somehow unsafe, and, and somehow that makes you a dangerous driver, a threat to other people. That's what has to be challenged in order to stomp all this back into the ground where it belongs. Well, I, I hope for, for the sake of everybody's sanity that this is challenged. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that I'm, a, I'm necessarily a lead foot, but, boy, government just wants to intrude into so many areas of my life. And this is, this is one more area where I would just really rather not. Well, the whole thing's silly. You think about this, this whole phenomenon of speeding. We all speed. It doesn't matter whether you speed more or less. We all speed. Nobody drives exactly the speed limit. Every single time you get behind the wheel of the car, you're going to find that you're going 37 miles an hour in a 35 zone, let's say, right? Right. You know, th- this is, it's just the nature of the drive. And we all, therefore, know that it's arbitrary and it has nothing to do with whether you're a safe or an unsafe driver. But if we accept the premise of it that any time you drive faster than whatever that number happens to be, you are, are now subject to being made to pay money as if you'd done something to cause harm to somebody, that's an outrage. You know, I've long argued that it's, uh, I think, a far more defensible policy to, uh, to, to, to deal with people who have lost control of their vehicle for whatever reason. People lose control of their vehicle when they're driving well below the speed limit. It happens all the time. Hold them accountable for that and stop fixating on these numbers, these arbitrary random numbers that, that do not correlate with safe or unsafe driving as such. And I, I don't remember if it was you or if it was uh, Boston Tea Party. So one, one of you guys, uh, who I consider kind of my driving gurus, talked about how, uh, you know, when, when you do speed, you're amortizing the cost of whatever speeding ticket you may get down the road. Every time you get away with it, you know, it's just pen- true. pennies on the dollar you know, for when you do get caught. 
This is true because, you know, time is money. And, you know, getting from A to B efficiently has a value of its own. And it has a value that you can't recover. Uh, you know, if, if you are compelled to operate at uh, a slower pace all the time, this costs you a lot of money over time. And, uh, you know, it, it's ultimately going to cost us uh, our, our mobility entirely if we let these people continue to get away with it. You know, it, it, it has gone from being somewhat reasonable to being completely out of control, which I think is a fair characterization of pretty much everything that these, these leftist authoritarians have gotten their hands on. And, and it appears that, uh, you know, the, the public in many ways is getting fed up with a lot of this uh, top-down, you know, command-control kind of mentality, mm-hmm. um, which is a good thing in the sense that people are waking up. It's also a little bit of a dangerous thing in that uh, when, when people in power recognize that they are losing their grip, that's when they have a tendency to lash out and, and do rash things. Um, case in point, the ATF right now is back in the spotlight. Oh, yeah. Um, I understand that Gun Owners of America has just revealed the ATF has been sitting on a secret uh, database of about a billion. It's like 900 and something million firearms transactions. And, and How uh, surprising. Yeah. A registry? Really? <laughs> now, you know, what strikes me as interesting about that uh, is that we are obliged in order to exercise a right to wit the, uh, the possession of a firearm. We are compelled and required uh, to produce identification and to have these transactions recorded by the government uh, to exercise a constitutional right. Meanwhile, uh, people are now being encouraged to vote who have absolutely no right to vote, i.e. non-citizens, and, uh, and, and apparently it's not a problem to uh, allow votes to be counted that uh, have not had their provenance established. We have no idea who cast these votes, who are these people, to even raise that question uh, to the left. Is to, is to trigger them into hysterical outcries about uh, how rights are being trampled upon. But somehow our constitutional right to legally go buy a firearm uh, is something that obliges us to be treated like a criminal and cataloged like criminals by these, these government agencies. Well, and there's, there's also some added drama in that uh, the ATF is now um, talking about uh, coming after uh, braced pistols, which is uh, a, a term for uh, people who've had a workaround for short-barreled rifles with this and, and avoiding having to be part of the National Firearms Act uh, taxing scheme. But also, they want to go after 80% lowers, and they're mm-hmm. doing this not by legislation, but actually just by rulemaking. So this is, this is more regulatory mischief, and, and the ATF seems to be mm-hmm. moving ahead on it. Well, sure, and it's part and parcel of this devolution of government authority to the administrative state. Uh, you know, these bureaucracies, these regulatory apparatus uh, that have somehow acquired the operational control of our country. You know, we're allegedly, supposedly living in a, a democracy or a democratic republic or however you want to put it, in which there's supposed to be some connection of accountability between the people who we elect to write the laws uh, and those lawmakers. And if we decide that what they're doing uh, it transcends the authority that we thought we were granting them by voting for them, well, we have the mechanism of the ballot to take them out of office. But how do you remove these administrative state people, these bureaucrats who have somehow gotten the power to uh, issue rules, rules that have the force and effect of law? We can't get rid of them. And it's a real problem, and it's something foundational, I think, that has got to be addressed. And, uh, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a long, long road to get that done. This is why when, when my, uh, my old veteran friends tell me, keep your head on a swivel, 
This is what they mean. Sure. Be, be aware of what's going on. Uh, don't be afraid. You know, don't be cowed into, oh, well, I guess I better go along with it. But but pay attention. <laughs> Eric, tell people about your yeah, website. Pe- where, where can they find it? Sure. It's epautos.com. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy to find. And uh, they'll find me there. I, I try to be on site most of the day. And uh, I'm happy to personally address any questions that people have. And I've also got... Uh, a, a strong body of, uh, of readers who uh, also do the same and bring to the table sometimes a, a lot of things that had not occurred to me. So I encourage people listening to us to go check out the comments as well. Okay. I sure appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Ditto. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm very happy to welcome my friend Sharon Wright Weeks back to the program. Um, she's she's kind of in a, in a pivotal role right now. Sharon, good to have you uh, back on the show we talked a few weeks ago, prior to the legislative session starting, and uh, you have been able to spend some time up on Utah's Capitol Hill <laughs> talking about the death penalty. And, and I know there are some people who are just meeting you for the first time, so give us a little bit of your background, why the death penalty is a concern that you and your family have dealt with now for, for nearly 40 years, and, and tell us how the battle goes on, on Utah's Capitol Hill. Well, thank you, Brian, for having me back. I got involved in the death penalty after the retrial of Ron Lafferty, who murdered my sister, Brenda Wright Lafferty, and my niece, Erica Lane Lafferty, in American Fork, Utah, 1984. He committed the crime along with his brother, Dan Lafferty. Dan received two consecutive life sentences to be served back-to-back, and Ron received the death penalty. Now, the death penalty is a a unique object. It is something that we talk about when we're in high school, we write papers about it, uh, when we're in college, and the reality of the death penalty is a lot of pain and suffering for families. So, My family was obviously very involved after the murder of our loved ones. And we, we began to quickly realize that it is not as it would seem in the fact that the appellate process prolongs the penalty far longer than it should because of mistakes made you know, by the government. So a lot of people don't know this, including our leadership. After so many years of going through this process, I sat down with my local representative, Lowry Snow, and asked him if he was aware, if our leadership in Utah was aware of what families, those that were left behind such a heinous crime work were going through. And I didn't think that it was anything malicious, but he, you know, he simply said, no, he hadn't thought about it at that time. 
So I wanted him to know of the pain and the suffering that was happening. The fact that it isn't true justice. It's very, very important for victims' families uh, to receive justice. I don't think it's part of the emotional healing process. It's part of an actual physical event that you're told by the government that you will receive. So obtaining that justice was imperative for me for many, many years. And when Ron Lafferty passed away in 2019, uh, actually on November 11th, 2019, of natural causes, uh, our hopes of ever receiving that justice was gone. Something that really struck so, me, though, you you told me at the time, that at that point, you know, the thought of, okay, justice finally is going to prevail, they're going to wheel uh, you know, an almost 80 year old guy mm-hmm. in a wheelchair and shoot him. You know, I mean, it was like, mm-hmm. okay, that, yeah, that doesn't sound a lot like justice, but no. I, something else that before we went on the air, you had mentioned to me that, uh, you know, because of DNA evidence, and I think the Innocence Project has, has been uh, very mm-hmm. instrumental in going back into cases and showing where sometimes justice has been miscarried horribly. And as it pertains to death penalty cases, what was the t- statistic you were sharing with me about, uh, you know, for, for all the different executions that actually have taken place, um, what was the ratio again of, of there, there were innocent people. I mean, mistakes have been made, but it was, I could not believe how one, how... one innocent person in eight. Wow. One, it was like, like 1.34, something like that. I mean, it's a percentage, which I'm not a math whiz, so that always baffles me. <laughs> but yes, it is a little over one percent that has statistically been proven since the moratorium was lifted in 1977. I did not become aware of why the appellate process was so such a daunting task until about 2013 when. I was sitting in uh, Judge D. Benson's federal court, and he asked to have another competency hearing. And I, you know, I, at that level of the process, it's really unheard of to have a competency hearing, especially when he had already had two. Those take between three and seven years to really get through. So I, I looked at the judge and I could see the hesitation and I thought he doesn't want his name on this. And you, I quickly pushed that thought out of my mind because clearly I have been wanting the justice that the state of Utah, that the government promised me. I started doing a little bit of research at that point, um, you know, about what other judges were doing. And I noticed, um, that there were so many similarities. And I had been looking for the needle in this haystack that I had been moving around trying to find where the hangups are. And that is when I came across a book um, written by Brian Stevenson. And he was an attorney out of Harvard in the late 80s that began uh, the Equal Justice Initiative, I believe is what it's called. And the, the book was called Just Mercy. 
they later made a movie about it. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see it, but uh, they ke- I think the movie came out in 2019. Haven't so seen while it, he was, but I've heard good things okay. about it. It's based on a true story, and I've had the opportunity to meet Brian Stevens. As a matter of fact, he came to Utah two weeks ago to talk to our leadership about his experience. So 2014, 2015, I started to find more and more cases of people that had been executed, um, innocent people had been executed. And I, I mean, it, I was devastated, first of all. I, it shattered my heart. And I just absolutely could not believe that we could live in a country like we do. I mean, this is the United States of America. We were in it. We were executing innocent people. I just could, I could not believe that this could happen and happened, you know, as much as it had happened. Then I found out about the, the innocence project at that same time. So around 2016, I had gone from, demanding the justice that the state of Utah promised our family to are we going to continue to execute innocent people in order to have a death penalty? Wow. It, yeah. So, I mean, it was just some part, you know, it's just part of my journey and I don't think it's worth having a death penalty at all. If we execute one person, there are some that agree with a certain percentage. You know, it's the cost of, of war or it's the cost of having it and it's worth it to them. To me, it's not worth it to, to execute a single innocent person in order to retain the death penalty. So that makes the process the appellate process or the post-conviction process even harder because it, we have to be sure. So I guess at the end of the day, before I came to talk to Lowry in 2017, I asked myself the question, do you trust the government, Sharon? And should they have this kind of power? Should our government have the power to kill people or killing people. It's, it's a moral question. It's also an ethical question and it's a legal question. Sharon, we're we're coming up on our break here, but when we come back, I want to, I want to press you a little bit more on this. I, I know there have to be people and maybe you've encountered them and hopefully you can comment on this who would say, Sharon, you of all people should be, you know, firmly in favor of the death penalty, but you're describing a journey here that, uh, I don't know, this sounds very principled to me in that uh, that would be the easier way to go, and yet uh, you're, you're standing up and saying, I'd rather see this go away no. than, than see innocent people, um, not to mention, you know, the, the suffering that your own family has had to, to go through, you know, as a result of this. Right. Okay, hold that thought. Correct. We're going to be back with Sharon Wright Weeks in just a few moments. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I have Sharon Wright Weeks on the line with me, and we are talking about the death penalty, which it turns out this is an issue this year in the Utah legislature. And Sharon, the thing I wanted to ask you next is, I know you have spent some time on uh, on Utah's Capitol Hill as the legislative session is underway. What's the experience been like? I mean, in the best of times, changing things like the death penalty is going to be kind of a, a hard sell, but we've had some pretty interesting times of, of late. Are, are legislators open to that idea? What have you seen so far? So, yes, I, I think that this is the right time. It's, I've had the opportunity to open up a discussion of actual experience, somebody that has been through uh, the process following a death penalty case. Uh, I think that our leadership and people in general just aren't aware of the process. People involved in the death penalty uh, suffer in silence. It's not a fun topic. I mean, be honest, it is not what you just love to chat about. So it's a difficult topic. Uh, I think that our leaders have the opportunity to educate their constituents I hope that they do that, but I, I am not a hundred percent sure they will. There is a perception uh, for our leadership that they remain tough on crime by having the death penalty. Though that is the general consensus in Utah, it's it's changing, but you know I think we're still like fifty fifty in Utah, and. Some people think, well, we need to keep the death penalty because this is for the worst of the worst crimes against humanity. And instead of getting rid of it, we just need to make it work faster, more streamline it. Well, then when you streamline it, then more innocent people will die. So it, you start at the beginning exactly after going through this and I do think that it is a topic that our leadership is more willing to listen to, uh, especially with my voice, because it is one of experience. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure they have the capability or the capacity to do the right thing and educate the public. Any, that any, may take some time. Anytime there's a, there's a policy change that, that challenges the way things are, there's always going to be some lobbying pressure brought to bear. And I'm just curious, who are the groups or what? who are the lobbies that are exercising influence to, to maintain, again, that tough on crime stance? Um, I, I'm just I'm not trying to lay blame so much. Is it is it attorneys? Is it is it law enforcement? Where where would that pressure come from? Well, law enforcement, absolutely, is a is a big pressure. And they have uh, asked the attorney general to, you know, to keep the death penalty. They do not want that to go away because of of when one of their brothers or sisters is is murdered by somebody. They want that to be an option. And I totally understand that. I accept that. I've been there before. When there's no question about the person's guilt or innocence, it, it 
it really comes as a matter of fact. But now that we have had innocent people executed by the government that we don't really trust that with that much power any longer, do we want to put families through that process knowing after I speak out what the actual process is? I do not think that that law enforcement would ever want the members of of their of the officer's family to go through that tunnel down that tunnel of hell that families are actually going through that are involved in a death penalty case. Boy, that's a side you don't think of until uh, until someone points it out and I, I, have right. to, I have to ask you, there, there had to have been a time, or uh, I'm sorry, let me just let you speak for yourself. Was there a time when, especially when, uh, when your sister and her daughter's murder were very fresh, I mean, did, did you want to see, yes, you know, he needs to die for, for, the, for, this, oh, yeah. for this? And where, where did that, uh, that change start to take hold where you went, okay, maybe this isn't all that's cracked up to be in terms of justice, and, and maybe I can't trust the government. Where was the turning point? Well, I would say that turning point was right around 2013 when the judge hesitated. I saw his hesitation. So that definitely was the turning point. To answer your first question, uh, you know, nobody asked me my opinion. We asked a a jury, and they were the ones that were tasked with this decision. I mentioned in the, the show that I did before, they were not the same people at the end of of the court session, four weeks later, as they were at the beginning, it was very difficult on them. I appreciated that. I could see that. And they were the ones that found him guilty. And they were also the ones who sentenced him to die. I didn't ever question them. The same as my family did never question the jury that gave Dan Lafferty two life sentences to be served back to back. We accepted whatever we were told was justice as justice. So I thought, why are we putting juries through this and then just completely discount everything that they went through? So I took on the personal responsibility, which looking back, I shouldn't have had to do for the state of Utah and went through the process. I felt like I was a shepherd smacking them with my stick to move them along. Uh, and, you know, we just weren't getting anywhere. It was in 2013 when I saw Judge uh, Benson's hesitation that my, uh, my mind began to change. When I found out about uh, Brian Stevenson's case uh, and read the book Just Mercy, that's when everything started to unfold for me. And I found out about more and more people who had been executed by the government. And, you know, just as time goes on, I looked at, at things during the pandemic. And I think a lot of people have, have really questioned uh, our leadership. And if the government can be trusted or, you know, can they be trusted at all or in some matters and not in other matters, definitely not in the matter of having the power to execute humans 
they should not have that much power. And that is, is how I feel now. It's not always how I have felt. It's been a very long process. Uh, Ron Lafferty was on death row for 35 years. Our leaders, our attorneys, as good as they are, could not get it done. We still have seven on death row in Utah. The longest is going to be 36 years this year. The shortest is going to be on death row for 23 years this year. How come they can't get this done? And, I mean, there's only seven cases. What is the attorney general's office doing? They're paying attorneys, but we're not seeing any results. And that's a different side of it, too. But, I mean, where's, how are we not getting anywhere? Well, I, I appreciate you speaking up. And, and I'm sure, you know, people people can, can hopefully empathize with, you know, coming forward and talking about things like this. You know, you have firsthand experience in a system that was supposed to, to bring justice for your sister and your niece's death. And um, in that quest for justice, it, it instead has, has victimized your family, perhaps inadvertently, mm-hmm. but, but it still has victimized your family. Um, thanks for sharing this. Thanks for having the courage to look and question things and be a truth seeker. It's uh, We talked about this off the air, but it's scary, you know, to confront truth. And if you, and if you find new truth, it's scary to adapt it into your thinking. But uh, Sharon, I just appreciate you, you speaking out. If, if people want to follow up, if they want to know more, where would you direct them? Um, I would direct them to their own leaders. I would hope that somebody will call, write, email, whatever. Send your leadership a message and ask them. Ask them what they think. Ask them how they feel. Ask them if they are aware of the challenges and the fact that the death penalty is not a true punishment. It's not a real, it's not a real thing. It's in name only. And maybe have that conversation with yourself, you know, individually about where you stand on these issues. Sharon, right. Right. Weeks. Thank you so much for being my guest. I've got to have you back on again. Oh, thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for wrong thinkers of every stripe. Now, what that means is you don't have to agree with anything that I say or anything that I share on this program. You don't have to agree with my guests. But I'm guessing you're here because you're just looking for a different take, a little different slant on what's happening in the world And that is perfectly okay. It does not have to come to you through approved sources. You do not have to stick to the 3 by 5 index card of approved opinion, as our friend Tom Woods would say. 
Anyway, I'm glad you're here. Great sponsors make this program a possibility on, on a daily basis. They include lifesavingfood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, hslammo.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, and monticellocollege.org. So I'm sure you've heard a little bit about the uh, controversy, you know, of Joe Rogan and Spotify. And isn't it crazy how a guy who's out there, I don't think he has any particular agenda. And, and maybe I'm wrong. And it's, it's funny. I've got, I got a couple of contrary friends, Kyle, I'm looking at you, that uh, <laughs> are just, well, you know, you people think Joe Rogan, you can hang everything, you know, on what he says. I don't think it's so much a matter of, oh, yeah, we're all Joe Rogan fanboys as I'm just grateful to see massive cracks, if not the complete failure of the dam that uh, has been holding back alternative points of view or something outside of a very controlled and and uh, carefully manicured uh, narrative that we're supposed to believe. So when, you know, for instance, Neil Young is saying, well, I'm, you know, either take my music off Spotify or take Joe Rogan off of there. Well, they took Neil Young off. And of course, this brought other personalities out. To, and it's, we can get caught up in the personalities, but I want you to hear how Joe Rogan responded to this. And, and this is just a little two minute clip, but this is a classy way to respond to uh, the attempts to paint him as some kind of a, you know, controversial figure out there spreading misinformation. Listen to what Joe Rogan has to say here. I think there's a lot of people that have a distorted perception of what I do, maybe based on sound bites or based on headlines of articles that are disparaging. Um, The podcast has been accused of spreading dangerous misinformation, specifically about two episodes, a little bit about some other ones, but specifically about two, one with uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and one with Dr. Robert Malone. Dr. Peter McCullough is a cardiologist and he is the most published physician in his field in history. Dr. Robert Malone owns nine patents on the creation of mRNA vaccine technology and is at least partially responsible for the creation of the technology that led to mRNA vaccines. Both these people are very highly credentialed, very intelligent, very accomplished people, and they have an opinion that's different from the mainstream narrative. I wanted to hear what their opinion is. I had them on, and because of that, those episodes in particular... Uh, they, those episodes were labeled as being dangerous. They had dangerous misinformation in them. The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. Like, for instance, eight months ago, if you said, if you get vaccinated, you can still catch COVID and you can still spread COVID, you would be removed from social media. They would, they would ban you from certain platforms. Now, that's accepted as fact. If you said, I don't think cloth masks work, you would be banned from social media. Now, that's openly and repeatedly stated on CNN. If you said, I think it's possible that COVID-19 came from a lab, you'd be banned from many social media platforms. Now, that's on the cover of Newsweek. All of those theories that at one point in time were banned were openly discussed by those two men that I had on my podcast that have been accused of dangerous misinformation. I do not know if they're right. I don't know because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a person who sits down and talks to people and has conversations with them. Do I get things wrong? Absolutely, I get things wrong. But I try to correct them. Whenever I get something wrong, I try to correct it because I'm interested in telling the truth. 
Yeah. Just, you know, could it be that uh, maybe he's not out there trying to uh, make everybody sick and cause everybody to die because they're not following those in authority? I think I think the man is sincere. And I'm sure there are things that uh, with which I would disagree with him. But I will always give the benefit of the doubt to someone who is willing to have open, honest conversation versus those who feel like, well, no, no, you can't even talk about it. You can't think that. And I, I would think this would be obvious, but I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, I don't know, maybe some people just, just feel the need to, you know, to be in control. And there's a lot of stuff in this world that's out of control. But I guess for what it's worth, Joe Rogan. He's not the source of your your frustrations and your worries. He's he's simply trying to to seek answers, as we all should be. I like to think that maybe I'm doing the same thing. Anyway, <clears throat> moving on. Here's a question for you: How do you feel about mandatory national service? Now, interestingly enough, years and years ago, back when I think he was actually making a presidential run, I had the chance to interview Alan Keyes, who I still think may be one of the the most well-spoken and well-informed commentators and, uh, you know, defenders of freedom out there. But there was a place where Alan Keyes and I actually got a little bit crosswise, and it was where he was saying, well, mandatory service, you know, mandatory um, civic service or, or national service, rather, that should be a requirement of every young American so they'll appreciate what they have. And at the time, it kind of struck me as, well, that sounds a lot like the draft, I mean, why, why should it be mandatory? And, and Alan Key's answer was, because that is the price of living in a free country. Now, it didn't set well with me then, and at the time, you know, he was a guest on my show, so I didn't, you know, feel like arguing him into the ground on it. But it just, it set off those cognitive dissonance bells in my mind where I was like, I'm, I'm celebrating the, the price of living in a free country by saying that uh, people should, especially young people, should be subjected to mandatory national service. Well, James Bovard, writing for uh, the Future of Freedom Foundation, has a great article about, uh, will politicians revive American slavery? Now, I realize this is a loaded term. (gasps) He said slavery, and it wasn't in the woke sense. But you got to think about this for a moment. Bovard says, in the wake of America's disastrous civil war, the 13th Amendment was enacted to prohibit involuntary servitude. But he says, unfortunately, top newspapers, pundits, and think tanks are now campaigning to nullify that prohibition. Apparently, slavery was evil, not because of the unjust subjugation, but because plantation owners rather than politicians were the profiteers. Now, he says, politicians have long been hustling to establish their prerogative to commandeer young Americans' lives. Maybe you remember at the Volunteerism Summit back in Philadelphia in 1997, President Bill Clinton announced that America needed more citizen servants and that the will to serve has never been stronger. In fact, Clinton praised Maryland and the District of Columbia for making service, that's in quotation marks, mandatory for any student seeking a high school diploma. In a Playboy article headlined The Return of the Hitler Youth, I ridiculed, I ridiculed Clinton for crusading for a national kitty draft forcing all teenagers to labor in a politically approved in politically approved community service for hundreds of hours before being granted a diploma. But Bovard says the kiddie draft was just the opening bid. There were plenty of progressives and conservatives itching to compel all young to sacrifice a year or more in again quote air quotes here national service. A perpetual fantasy inside the beltway 
ever since military conscription was suspended in 1973. James Bovard says, unfortunately, the easiest way to prove your your moral superiority in Washington is to champion destroying everyone else's freedom. And he goes through the history of AmeriCorps and, and how that worked out and talks about how despite the scandals, politicians still loved AmeriCorps. And from here, he dives into the philosophy behind national service. In fact, he says compulsory national service is the deranged civics version of modern monetary theory. MMT theory presumes that politicians can fabricate and spend unlimited amounts of fiat money without profoundly damaging the economy. By the way, we're getting quite an object lesson in whether this is true or not right now. Just look at those prices next time you buy anything. Similarly, he says, compulsory national service proponents presume politicians can destroy a vast swath of freedom without harming America. Proponents tacitly assume that the time of young people is of zero value, so their scheme costs nothing. Since every 18 to 20-year-old is squandering all their time playing video games or watching Pornhub, why not round them up and make them serve? But he asks, where did the politicians acquire the right to command young people to postpone building their lives. I'll come back to this in just a few moments. I'm just going to touch on it briefly, but I want you to I want you to click on the link that I provide to this article in the show notes, which you'll find at the com. If you want a straight take on what's going on in Washington DC, you're going to be hard-pressed to do better than what Jim Bovard has to offer. Really, really great stuff here. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick mention for one of our great sponsors, that being lifesavingfood.com. If you've thought about food storage and realized, you know, this this is something that actually makes a lot of sense. I don't care how diligent you've been. You probably have a few areas where you might need to, uh, you know, fill in some gaps or maybe shore up your supply of food and, you know, your ability to be self-reliant. Click on the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Go to lifesavingfood.com. You'll get a 20% discount on whatever you buy. Free shipping, no sales tax. My friend Kendall is doing everything he can to save you money and incentivize getting started on that food storage. Best time to start was, of course, a few years ago. Second best time is right this minute. So I was sharing this article from Jim Bovard, Will Politicians Revive American Slavery? And I don't hear a lot of clamor for it right now, but it is interesting that compulsory national service is something that gets floated from time to time as if we need to draft these young Americans into working for the country for free. Bovard says compulsory national service would provide attitude adjustment for an entire generation. In fact, he says many proponents stress that shackling young people is the best way to encourage them to be tolerant and appreciative of people of different backgrounds. Pulitzer Prize-winning plagiarist uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin favors national service because you get people from the city to the country, country to the city, and you begin to create a new generation that has shared values. Okay, Bovard says indoctrination would be a huge part of any such program, but the media wouldn't use that term because progressive values would be inculcated. 
So the vast majority of young Americans spent 12 years in government schools, but politicians want more control over their thoughts. One of the clearest lessons from the burgeoning crusade for compulsory service is that much of the nation's elite media utterly disdain individual liberty. Since freedom for average Americans has zero value in itself, pundits and poobahs have zero concern about politicians destroying it. And many of the advocates for national conscription are blinded by their own halos. They feel they are so morally superior that forcibly imposing their values on everyone else can only be a boon for humanity. But Jim Bovard says rather than becoming patriotic, conscripts would likely be embittered to realize that politicians wasted a swath of their lives in which they could have developed their minds and talents to make themselves self-sufficient citizens. Yeah. He says being obliged to argue against mass conscription is symptomatic of how the intellectual battle lines have shifted in recent decades. There was a time when politicians who claimed a right to temporarily enslave young people would have been denounced as scoundrels and ridiculed off the national stage. Nowadays, champions of compulsion are hailed as moral visionaries paving their way to a brave new world. He concludes by saying few things are more perilous to freedom than permitting politicians to sanctify government's iron fist. Bovard says we should not turn young people into cannon fodder for good deeds that exist only in White House press releases. At a time when the media endlessly denounces inequality, he says, remember, the greatest and most dangerous inequality is that between haughty government officials and citizens stripped of their constitutional rights. Peaceful coexistence between all citizens is the recipe for an American revival, not a vast increase in subjugation to indoctrinate the latest woke catechism of the week. Man, that's hitting hitting all the right nerves. <laughs> that is it's just good on so many levels. Again, this is written by James Bovard. I have a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Well, I've been watching with some interest the uh, Canadian trucker protest, which it looks like is spreading in many ways. Interesting, too, to see how the, the Canadian government... Look, when they're faced with the reality, I mean, Trudeau, the prime minister, has tried to hide from it, and then when he couldn't hide from it, well, he feigns outrage. Well, you know, the racist and this this horrific and, and rude, you know, protest. It's just terrible and... You know, we're, we're supposed to we're supposed to take our cues from him. Oh, yeah, yeah. They couldn't possibly be right. They couldn't possibly be correct to stand up and say, we are not going to be mandated into health decisions that we don't make ourselves. And by the way, it's not just, you know, for truckers. They are saying all mandates until all the mandates are gone. This protest is not going to end. I mean, for crying out loud, they blocked the uh, the border crossing at uh, Sweetgrass and Montana uh, yesterday on both sides of the border. Pretty interesting stuff. An RCMP SWAT team was sent, and they were given the, the orders, you know, telling the truckers, you guys have to move. The truckers said, we're not moving. So, yeah, it's building. It's uh, There's definitely some escalation here, but I want you to note, who is threatening violence? It ain't the truckers. It's the government, and this is a pattern that uh, you can observe very readily. The state doesn't need to persuade you. It's organized force. And as I warned yesterday in the show, the danger now is that the state realizes people are withdrawing their consent. They're not doing what they're told. So what can the state do but flex its mighty muscles and start threatening violence? Ron Paul, by the way, had a great commentary about how we are all Canadian truckers now. 
He says, we all seem to remember where we were when the Berlin Wall came down. While it may have seemed that communist rule would go on forever, when the people decided that they had had enough, suddenly the wall fell, just like that. Thus it is after two years of COVID authoritarianism that in Canada, the largest truck convoy in history has smashed through the Berlin Wall of Tyranny. Ron Paul says, I've watched as the Canada I once respected as a haven for anti-war Americans in the 1960s turned into one of the most repressive countries on earth. And he says, I wonder how a freedom-loving people could allow themselves to be abused by these mini Stalins without a peep. But then Canada stood up and showed the rest of the world that freedom can triumph over tyranny if the people demand it. Ron Paul says, as I say, no army can stop an idea whose time has come. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's been basking in his ability to terrorize the population in the name of fighting a virus. He was so confident in his seemingly unlimited power that he felt he could ridicule any Canadian with different views. The Prime Minister said in a recent interview that unvaccinated Canadians were extremists, misogynists, and racists. When the Canadian truckers stood up to his tyranny and began their historic journey to Ottawa, he thought he could continue ridiculing people. The truckers and their supporters were just a small fringe minority who hold unacceptable views, he confidently claimed. For Trudeau, love of liberty is an unacceptable view. Less than a week later, as tens of thousands of trucks began entering the capital with millions of supporters behind them, the brave Canadian prime minister fled the city and shuffled off to an undisclosed location, playing the victim all the way, by the way. Well, it was out of safety concerns for me and my family. Tyrants will do that. As Elon Musk tweeted, it would appear that the so-called fringe minority is actually the government. Ron Paul says the Canadian mainstream media is obviously just as obedient to the regime as ours. They ignored the Freedom Convoy for as long as possible. There was almost no reporting. Then when it became impossible to ignore, they began to attack and ridicule instead of trying to report it accurately. It was disgusting and almost comical to see a reporter from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation suggest that the Canadian Freedom Convoy was cooked up by Putin and the Russians. Wow. Ron Paul says thousands of trucks have arrived in Ottawa. They demanded end to COVID tyranny. And they're backed by millions of citizens who braved the Canadian winter at night to cheer the truckers on. Now, he says this protest is so important because it's not limited to Canada. The truckers are being supported worldwide. A similar convoy is being planned from California to Washington, D.C. In a U.S. where grocery store shelves are increasingly bare, the truckers have more leverage than the powers that be would like to admit. He says, if I were the prime minister of a totalitarian Australia or New Zealand or most anywhere in Europe, Ron Paul says I'd be getting pretty nervous right now. Just as the COVID tyranny descended across the globe in a seemingly coordinated fashion, now that the Berlin Wall of the Tyrants has been breached... It's just a matter of time before the shockwaves are felt far and wide. He says, we owe a debt of gratitude to the Canadian truck drivers. Let's all do whatever we can to help the freedom movement continue to gather steam. I got some more thoughts on this. I'll have to wait till the other side of the break to share them. But if you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, do so. Click on subscribe at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining us here on the show. I I don't know if I express my gratitude often enough. I probably don't, but I so appreciate you listening to this program, giving me a chance if this is your first time, you know, listening in. And I appreciate the people who make it possible for me to do what I do. This is not just a fun hobby. It's not just, you know, I'm, I'm not building a monument to myself of fame and fortune here. I feel like I'm, I'm living a life mission here, and I feel like I've been preparing my whole life to be a truth speaker in a time where speaking the truth uh, is, is not particularly easy, or at least getting the truth out is not particularly easy. But it is a huge honor and a privilege, and I'm thankful for sponsors like Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has been one of my truest and greatest sponsors. If you appreciate what you hear in this show, I would encourage you, especially if you're anywhere within the state of Utah or if someone you know is looking for a VA loan or a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, maybe just refinancing your existing mortgage, talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Her number is 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I love it when I come across a great uh, substack or a great uh, website that has uh, solid takes, you know, principled information that's not drenched in partisan, you know, spittle flinging. And I think I just found another one here. This is a substack called naturalselections.substack.com. It's a writer by the name of Heather Haying. And I hope I'm saying your name right, Heather, but she really has some terrific articles here. And in fact, I want to share some excerpts from one. This is called Proud to be Canadian Again. And she says, huge numbers of Canadians lined roadways and overpasses to cheer on the truckers on their way to Ottawa this past weekend. People with signs of love and belonging, reveling in our common humanity. With glowing hearts, as the line from the Canadian National Anthem goes, the true north, strong and free. And she says the truckers and their friends and supporters are overwhelmingly open and generous, seeking a return of the freedoms that have been taken from them, as from so many of us. And there's an abundance of footage online now, and she actually links to a great summary. And yet... She points out the British newspaper, The Guardian, in one of two articles about this massive movement, highlights, I hope I'm saying this guy's name right, Cassava Vizi, a trucker whose introduction to us is through his words, which contain a grammatical error. He says, I'm not able to work no more because I can't cross the border. Now, Heather Hying says, look, Hying rather, she says, look, one can almost hear the educated readers of The Guardian snickering into their masks. But she says, alas for them, good grammar is not a proxy for truth. Vast swaths of the educated class have demonstrated for the past two years that their educations were woefully inadequate. When told to follow the science by a dude who claims that I am the science, they do so. When asked whether or not there might be more to the story, whether the story might not be what it seems, this same educated class assures us the science is settled. And what does the science say? Somehow it justifies a conveyor belt of COVID vaccines from here into eternity, vaccines that prevent neither transmission nor infection, although just months ago we were assured that they did. Vaccines even for children and pregnant women, also masks for everyone, including children, who even more than the rest of us need to see each other to speak and breathe freely 
and to see others doing the same. She says somehow the fact that the science is an incoherent mashup of politically motivated policies does not register. The educated class keep right on snickering into their masks, their feelings of superiority and entitlement enhanced by having been misinformed, yes, by their precious mainstream outlets. Outlets that once upon a time could justifiably be called news outlets, but no more. They are outlets now, to be sure, but outlets for anger and anxiety rather than news. Outlets that propagate division and delusion. And she says one thing that all of this has put in stark relief is how uneducated many of the educated actually are. How ignorant the smart people are. How smug and naive are those who just happen to be best positioned to ride out the insanity, the lockdowns and the masking and the fear campaigns, while relying on people who do real work. People like the truckers to keep on trucking, but please leave the thinking to us. VZ, the trucker who committed the mortal sin of using the construction, I'm not able to work no more, is then used by the Guardian to further entrench its entitled readers while stroking their egos. I refuse the vaccine, he said, calling it dangerous. Now, Heather Haynes says, look, this may garner a knowing snort or an eye roll from the educated Guardian reader, ego stroked and dug into full COVID anxiety and hysteria as she likely is. But such a person might also look around furtively at this point for affirmation. All such readers might sometimes look up from their lives of aspirational envy and wonder if the tiny slice of the world that they live in is actually reflective of the whole world. To which she says, I can assure them that it is not. Heather Hying says the... uh, Haying, rather, sorry, I'm butchering her her name. My apologies, Heather. The moralizing of the pseudo-educated class is pathetic and desperate. The popular AM show Morning Joe did a particularly grotesque segment, disgust and disdain dripping from every syllable. They claim that dozens of trucks (laughs) brought Ottawa to a standstill, a movement that escalated into an expression of disapproval with the Canadian government's COVID-19 policies. Officials say several investigations are underway into reports of severe vandalism and criminal behavior, including the desecration of national monuments. The hosts of Morning Joe conclude participants in the Truckers for Freedom movement are a cult. Well, Heather says there is a cult to be found in this story, to be sure, but the truckers and their supporters who number together in the millions aren't in it. These media bobbleheads are not speaking truth. They're not even speaking what they think. They may not be thinking hard on it at all, considering new information, more data, a better, or a better analysis, and coming to a different conclusion the next day. No, that would be a scientific approach, one based not in ideology but in humanity. Rather, this is hateful, divisive, facile rhetoric. With ideological rhetoric such as this, we might at least expect consistency. At least with set-and-forget lives, you should trust that you will not be found out as a hypocrite. So what does characterize this movement? Well, the Truckers for Freedom convoy and protests are massive and peaceful. The people in them are patriotic and proud. They seek the freedoms that we were all born to, not special treatment from the state. Have there been any outliers? Rogue individuals who behaved in ways they shouldn't have or flown flags that nobody else wanted there? Surely, yes. But the mainstream media would have us believe this is a movement of washing Confederate flags and swastikas. These people are full of ignorance and hatred. Heather Haying says, no, I would posit that it is rather the mainstream media that is full of ignorance and hatred. 
Here are the words of a professional man who will remain anonymous out of concerns for his job should his positions be known. A man who is fully vaccinated against COVID, by the way, excuse me, regarding what he saw as of the convoy between Quebec and Ottawa. He said, I had the privilege of traveling through Ottawa on Saturday, January 29th from the Quebec side, and I got to see firsthand the trucker convoy protest. And he says, what surprised me was how much activism and support there was on the Quebec side, Quebec side rather, and effort made by authorities to prevent people from traveling from Quebec into Ottawa. I was stuck in traffic for four hours for what's normally a 40-minute drive. The energy, positivity, camaraderie, and celebration were truly emotionally profound. The inclusivity and solidarity were something I haven't felt for years. Finally, I felt like I was validated in my beliefs. Everyone was so kind, so supportive. It was such a positive experience. Now he goes on to say, I did not see one example of anger, violence, racial or gender prejudice, and not one Confederate or Nazi flag. The movement of people I witnessed would have denounced any examples of the aforementioned. End quote. Here are the words of Heidi Bruckert. A Bukert, rather, wife of trucker Bern Bukert, who with his friend Andy Drigger has gone to Ottawa about what they're seeing. She says, this movement is so powerful, not just the truckers, but the throngs of people coming out to support them. There hasn't been a city, town or hamlet they've passed without crowds of people coming out to cheer them on and ply them with food and goods and offers of a place to stay or a hot shower. Bernie says he hasn't had a day yet without getting choked up by the overwhelming generosity of the people they've encountered. I think perhaps the sense of unity and love for our fellow Canadians is the real story developing. Over and over we hear people say that after two years, they're proud to be Canadian again. There's more to this article. I'm going to leave it to you to explore it for yourself. But I strongly recommend you should take a look at this. It's the, the link is in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And you might even consider subscribing to Heather Haying's uh, Substack. It's a marvelous, marvelous resource. And she's written on a number of other topics as well. Yeah, it troubles me to see, you know, the, the portrayal of, well, this is all just a bunch of angry malcontents and madmen out there, you know, waving their fists in the air. I don't know. I'm encouraged. I see people coming together and speaking with one voice. And to me, that says good things. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us today. Want to mention one of my great sponsors here, and if you or somebody you know is into sewing or quilting or embroidery, you know, basically uh, working with fabric and thread, you really should talk to my friends at the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com is their website. Look, I'll just tell you the, the down and dirty. They sell the latest and greatest machines that make it possible to do truly amazing works of, of sewing, embroidery, quilting, and so, and so forth. They also service these machines. They sell all the supplies to go along with them. They teach classes so that you know how to use them. They follow up and they back up their customers, and that's the peace of mind that I think a person would want if they're investing in these. And these can be some fairly significant investments. 
but they also do an awful lot of good. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Tell them thanks for being a sponsor of the show. All right, couple other quick things I want to cover here. Um, this is this is a great one. Paul Rosenberg, his latest essay on teaching children how to love. Now, I had never considered this before, but have you ever thought, is love, learning to love others, is that a skill that can be taught? I don't know why. I had it in my head that maybe, maybe that's just, you know, something that we're born with. You know, people... You know, you, you, you can develop a sense of love towards another person, but uh, some people just seem to have a very loving nature, and some people don't. But how do you teach kids, first of all, what love is, but how to love the people around them? I thought this was some pretty useful stuff. Paul Rosenberg says, To my surprise and disappointment, I recently realized that I have never seen anything written on teaching children how to love. Showing by example, yes. Telling them that they should, yes. But as far as the direct nuts and bolts of how to love, no. Now, he says, my experience is limited, of course. Everyone's is. But I've been around, and I've read a lot, and I've never seen anything directly addressing this. In fact, he says, the closest I could think of was Eric Fromm's The Art of Loving. But that was clearly directed toward adults. So he says, I did some searching and I found a few things on the general subject and God bless the people who put in that time and effort, but it wasn't what I was looking for. They taught kids about love, but not how to love. Now he says, I'm convinced that children need to be taught how to love. And these things don't need to be murky mysteries and they shouldn't be. Given the deep importance of actual love in the world, which is immense, Our ongoing failure to teach this subject has been a stupendous loss. So he starts with, the first important lesson is to make clear, what do we mean by love? Because the word sells well, it's used a lot and is sometimes used in confusing ways as as a catch-all term. We adults may get the general drift of what's being expressed, but young children will often be confused. And that confusion, first of all, wastes their time. Secondly, he says it may derail a good deal of growth, at least until they built a broad enough picture to sort things into. Acting lovingly in front of children, fundamental and crucial though it may be, and it is, isn't really enough. He says children are intelligent, even if ignorant, and they will see you not just at your, see you just, let's try that again. They will see you not just at your best, but also at your worst. In other words, in real life, you will mess up from time to time, muddying the message. So having a clear understanding will anchor them in useful ways. Now, moving along to definitions. He says, the type of love that I'm talking about is not a stronger version of like, as in, I love chocolate. Nor is it sexual attraction. What I'm addressing is close to what the old Greeks called agape. And what I mean precisely is this. Love is a hunger to bless. At its base, this is a primal desire to improve other things, tinged with divinity. And so I call it a hunger to bless. Not to recompense, fine as that may be, but to pour out and or to cause. When loving this way, you assume yourself to be a source and a powerful source. So translating this concept into child language, we get something like wanting to make someone better. 
Now, better, of course, would mean happier, healthier, and so on. So he says the child must first understand what you mean by love. And that means you have to translate this concept into whatever terms the child is able to grasp. Once the child is older and asks about other uses of love, you can explain about I love chocolate and so on. English, which is very, which is usually very useful for shades of meaning, lacks words for clearly expressing the various types of love. So starting at the roots, he says love requires compassion for others or at least sympathy for them. Now, he says, I won't try to properly separate those two terms here, but recognizing the feelings of others, the inner state of others, is crucial. And it's something that children need to be taught. All decent parents will do this, but they do it in the form of unhappy reactions, not as clear concepts delivered comfortably. So we need to teach our children to see the inner state of others, to build build images in their mind of what the people in their life are like internally, how they feel, how they would react in certain situations. Now, there's a valid question as to when a child's brain is ready to build that type of image and to hold dozens of them at once. And he says, I don't know the answer to that. And I suspect it's not for several years. But we need to deliver these concepts and hopefully not when we're angry and scolding the child. So here are a few sample phrases. How do you think mom feels when you say X? How do you think dad feels when you do X? How do you think Jimmy felt when you took his toy away? How would you feel if Jimmy took your toy away? Or you could say something like, your job is to protect little brother, grandma, whomever, from feeling bad. Or make mom, dad, or whomever feel like you love them, like you want them to be happy. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, in all these cases, we want the child to build up an image of the inner life of others and compare it to their own inner life. That's the rootability that needs to sprout and to flower. In fact, he says these phrases are all actually precursors to the golden rule which makes a nice compliment to the, all of the above. We treat people the way we'd like to be treated. Teach that wherever you can, he says. It's the foundation of moral clarity and of more or less all the decency on this planet. Now, it takes persistence. Paul Rosenberg says children are not quite the same as adults, and more than that, we can't see what's going on inside of them. And as noted above, it may be some time before the child's brain is physically ready to work others as yourself into their thinking very deeply. All of this means that you can teach these lessons for a good while without observing results. Now, the solution to this problem is to start anyway and to persist. You don't have to pound these lessons every day, but he says you do have to deliver them regularly and over a long time. And while I again have no proof for this, he says, it's best to deliver these lessons warmly and not as scolding. If you see a better path to understanding your child, use it or at least test it. See if it works. But don't stop delivering the basics until you're sure they rooted. He says, we need our children to see the inner state of others. That is the central goal. And he says, my best advice is that you keep teaching this concept in any way you can, just being aware that it will be a long process. Don't be discouraged if you don't see immediate results. Just keep pressing on, as they used to say. I know, that may seem like kind of an odd topic to bring up, but I'm convinced that, uh, you know, we can't accomplish what we have to accomplish. 
And that by that, I mean whatever your individual purpose in life is, whatever it is you're doing to try to move the needle in the right direction. It can't be done if you're not doing it from a, from a position of I'm motivated by love for the people around me. I don't want to get all gushy on you, but uh, I try to speak whatever truth I'm speaking with a sense of love for whomever may be listening, even if I'm pretty sure that they may be firmly in the other camp or firmly disagreeing with me. The one thing I don't want to do is approach them from an attitude of condescension and, you know, disdain or worse, contempt. And I'm not going to pretend that that's, that's an easy thing to do. Some, there are some, you know, individuals and there are some ideals and, and whatnot that I sometimes feel contemptuous toward. But I've also seen firsthand what it takes to, to help pry open minds that have been snapped shut like a bear trap. And there is nothing that helps to, to open another person's mind, whether they agree with you or not, but at least to, to show them that you're not the monster they may have been told you were. There's nothing like love to, to cause that, uh, that mind to open. So think about it and how you treat other people could be more than just discussions. It could be how you treat people in traffic. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.